Pasha Shlach, we have one of the two great sins the Jews committed in the desert, along with the Meraglim, the sin, along with the Egel, the sin of the Meraglim is the other great sin committed by the Jews. The sin of the Meraglim, the scouts, or the spies. Unlike the Egel, which is a pretty uh, clear-cut sin, what exactly they did, it was pretty classic idol worship. The sin of the Meraglim is much more difficult. It is much harder to pin down exactly what the sin was. <coughs> Some say Moshe should not have sent the Meraglim. That was a sin. The Jews, Moshe should not have sent the Meraglim. Others say, Hashem said, the very first Pasuk, by Dever Hashem Hashem said, send them. Besides that, the Ramban explains the Torah is not so mechalhanes, the Torah, and so forth. Others say that Hashem wants us to, even in, the, even in the generation of the desert full of miracles, Hashem wants us to <coughs> conduct our affairs according to the, the laws of this world. Sending the Meraglim was fine. Yoshua later sends Meraglim to, uh, when, when, he, when, when he attacks Yericho, so Yeshua was, was the one who avoided the sin of the Meraglim. Yeshua was Moshe's loyal disciple, so it wasn't apparently wrong to send the Meraglim. Others, others say that the sin was Lashon Hara. We mentioned Dibas Haaretz. The, the Torah, one of the Psukim in this parasha refers, says, Vayotziu Dibas Haaretz. It says that they, they slandered the land. Again, Last week's parasha, end of Balaska, we talked about the, the Lashon Hara of Miriam and Aaron. Lashon Hara on a land is a, uh, it's a curious concept, the land being an inanimate object. There are many Midrashim that talk about, you know, Moshe didn't want to hit the land, and so on, but certainly the classic notion of Lashon Hara requires a sentient, conscious victim. Others emphasize the theological dimensions of the sin, the idea that they refused to accept Hashem could wage war for them. The Kalev said, Yachal Nuchal, that, that, we will, that we will, Hashem will help us, Hashem will, and they, they, they couldn't accept that Hashem would, uh, Hashem would be able to fight the, the giants, the, the, the terrible defenders of Canaan. There are all kinds of different angles about what the hate actually was. We're going to focus tonight on one other aspect of the chet, an ineluctable aspect of the chet, as mentioned in Tehillim. It says, Vayimasu Be'aretz Chemda. It says, the Jewish people, they despise the promised land. That that one aspect, again, it's not exclusively the the problem necessarily, but the point is, one aspect of the sin is that they they showed contempt, they they despised Eretz Yisrael, they weren't interested. Hashem said, it's uh, that we find that also the, the, the good ones, Yeshua and Kalev said, Tovahi, it's good, Zavas Kalevudvash. They refused to accept it. They said it's, uh, it's, it's, they said it's monstrous, the fruits are strange, everything is strange. The Jews had a, a failure to appreciate a certain contempt for, for Eretz Yisrael, and they were punished for that. This is a theme that runs throughout Jewish literature, down, echoes down through the generations. Many Many Gedoli Yisrael over the centuries felt that we haven't quite uh, we haven't quite gotten our act together around this one yet. We are we are still perennially guilty of being vayimas huberetzchemda. Obviously, the the prime example of that. The question is, should more Jews be making aliyah than than actually are? Now, at the end of the day, I haven't made aliyah. I have no immediate plans to make aliyah. So I, I, I certainly don't mean to. Uh, you know, you know, to be the hypocrite and to say everyone else should be making Aliyah except for me who has good, a good excuse. We all have our reasons why we don't and, and we'll discuss throughout the share some of the, some of the variety of reasons offered by Gedele Torah throughout the generations for why many, most Jews don't make Aliyah. But, but this, is, this is the charge that echoes throughout Jewish literature, the, the problem of the Jews had the opportunity to enter Eretz Yisrael and they turned their backs on it and, and this is something that Jews have grappled with throughout the generations. 
one of the most uh, powerful, most eloquent uh, diatribes on this topic, diatribe in the, in the best sense, is Rabbi Yaakov Emden. Rabbi Yaakov Emden is in his Siddur, his Siddur Basel. He's actually, the, his, his, his jumping off point is the discussion in the Laws of Shemona Esrei, that a person is supposed to face Yerushalayim, and besides physically facing Yerushalayim, he's supposed to direct his, his thoughts, his emotion toward Yerushalayim. Rabbi Yaakov Emden says, let, let's, let's not forget what's important here. It's all very nice, he says, to make this symbolic focus on Yerushalayim and to think about it. He says, that's what you do if you can't actually be in Yerushalayim. He says, the next best thing, if, that's, if the best you can do, if you can't be there yourself, the next best thing is to think about it and turn toward it, he says. But that is not an excuse for someone who could be there and isn't, he says. And then, then he says, for such a person, that's not enough, he says, to think about Yerushalayim and go back to your daily business. A Simon Balma. He says that, he says that that's, that's uh, for those people who can't, because of Sakana, we'll discuss Sakana later, danger, then the best they can do is, uh, is the symbol, he says. If you're an onus, if you have no choice, you can't, he says. That's the best you can do, he says. Uh, but certainly a person has to primarily try to be there, he says. Tzarech Kaladam, every Jew has to determine in his heart, determine internally, he says, that a, a fixed haskama, haskama, kavua, utikua, to make aliyah, at least when he can, Financially, other issues he discusses, we'll touch on them later. As assuming he has some plan to support himself, he says that the, to settle in Eretz Yisrael, the person has to long, has to yearn to going to Eretz Yisrael, the Shechina is still there, and so on. And so he exhorts the people of his generation. Why he himself never made Aliyah, I don't know. I'm not sufficiently familiar with his life to know what the, what the options were for him, why he did, or what, what his calculations were, and he never did. Why, as far as I know, why he did not, I don't know. But to here, he exhorts the people of his time that they should be making Eliyah. If somebody was living in Eretz Israel but not in Yerushalayim, would he say they have to move to Yerushalayim? So that, that's another good question that uh, we're discussing making Eliyah from Chutzlar to Eretz Israel. A related question is going to be going from anywhere else in Eretz Israel to Yerushalayim. As we'll see, some, we'll touch on this, some of the same sources that focus on the importance of going to Eretz Israel also focus on going to Yerushalayim within Eretz Israel. There is a famous passage in the Chassam Sofer. There was a great earthquake in Svas in the 18th century, I think, where many people died, many Jews died, and the Chassam Sofer wrote a, a hesped, wrote a, a discussion of, of what had happened, and he says that the, the reason for this earthquake, the destruction of Tzfas, and, and, and its death toll, was a neglect of Yerushalayim. He says, from the time of the Beis Yosef, the Arizal, from the 16th century, we find major Jewish communities in Tzfas, much less so in Yerushalayim. For hundreds of years, this was the case. Today, uh, thank God, Akshar Dari, today we have a, uh, a great community in Yerushalayim, but for centuries, from the 16th century on, for whatever reasons, historical reasons, unknown reasons, the Jewish community was heavily, uh, heavily focused around Tzfas. In, in the time of the Beis Yosef, there was the great, the generation before the Beis Yosef, there was the great debate between Rabbi Yaakov Beirav and Rabbi Levi Ibn Chaviv about smicha, about reinstating smicha. The details of the, of the battle are not relevant to us right now, but basically it was largely a geographic machlokis with the, the sages of Tzfas, who were led by Rabbi Yaakov Beirav, the circle that Arizal was part of, and so on, were, were on one side of the debate, and Rabbi Levi ibn Chaviv was virtually alone. Yushalayim was relatively a, a tiny community back then, but he, he was the one great, illustrious scholar in Yushalayim, and he fought them. He used to sign his letters, Issue Yushalayim, always, and it became a, something of a battle between Yushalayim and Tzvast. Tzvast definitely had the preponderance in terms of 
in terms of Torah scholars, in terms of Jewish community, and that situation persisted for centuries, and the Chassam Sofer said that that was uh, a reason for the earthquake. It's interesting that the Chassam Sofer also is very skeptical about the whole, the whole Meron celebration, the whole obsession with Rabbi Shem Bar Yochai. He's very, what happened to Yerushalayim, he says, you know, why are we so worked up about Rabbi Shem Bar Yochai? In his Chuvas, he discusses that back and forth about why everyone ended up in Tzfas. He doesn't really know, he says. You know, he says it's, it's, a, it's a self-perpetuating thing. Once that's where the yeshivas are, that's where everything is. It's understandable why later generations move there, he says. Not so clear why the early generations move there. We don't know, he says. The reasons can be lost and perhaps are lost in, in history. We, we just don't know, he says. But, it, but, it, but in, in various places, he is definitely uncomfortable and disturbed somewhat by the, by the phenomenon. And again, in, in some of his writings, he just says, we don't know why it happened, but now it's kind of self-perpetuating. And elsewhere, he says, that was actually why the great earthquake occurred as a reminder, a punishment for the neglect of Yerushalayim. We're going to focus tonight mostly on the basic question of aliyah, or the basic question of the, what kind of moral, halachi, comparative do Jews have to leave Chutzlarts and go to Eretz Yisrael. So Rebbe goes on, he exhorts the members of his generation to, to, to leave the Eretz Yisrael, the, the impure lands of the exile, and go to Eretz Yisrael. Chas Veshalom, he says, do not consider settling there and assimilating here, he says. In his mind, Chutzlar's also, still is today to some extent, was, was inextricably bound up with assimilation. You were more likely to be Jewish and, and stay, stay religious in Eretz Yisrael. He says, this was Chatas Avoseinu Harishonim. This was the sin, this was the original sin, so to speak, of our ancestors that caused Bechi Eludaros, the sin of the Miraglim, Ki Masu Eretz Chemda. That's, again, the Pasuk in Tehillim, which refers to the sin of the Miraglim and despising Eretz Yisrael, this is kind of a very ironic play on words. We say which we talk about the schus of the, the promise of Hashem and the favor of Hashem and the schus of various things. You've all heard the Devrei Torah, the Seder, what Vihishamda refers to exactly, but stood us, stood us throughout, stood in our, stood, stood uh, protected us throughout the generation. This is just the opposite. He says, this original sin of despising Eretz Yisrael is what has uh, been a thorn in our side from thousands of years ago in the time of the Miraglim all the way down till today in our bitter gullus. Lo echad belvad amadaleinu, not just once has this happened, b'chaldar, he says, in every generation we've suffered and we've repeatedly had, had the, the, the travails and the turmoil of exile, he says, al-savareinu nirdafnu, echoes of echa and so on, we've been pursued and we've been harassed, he says, we've never been left, we have never been left alone. Why? We have completely forgotten the imperative of living in Eretz Yisrael. He says there's not one in a thousand of, of someone, not one in a thousand Jews is idealistic enough to go make Aliyah. One in a country, two in a generation, he says. Nobody cares, nobody, nobody pays attention to Eretz Yisrael. And then he has another famous line. This line is, I think, more famous in Rameir Simcha of Davinsk's version, but he actually has the original version. It has seemed to us, he says, when we were tranquil, when we were b'shalva, b'chutzlarts, we have found Eretz Yisrael, Yerushalayim, Acheres, we have found a new Israel, a new Jerusalem. In chutzlarts, he says, Rameir Simchav Dvin famously talked about people who thought Berlin was Yerushalayim, and that's why the Tzara started from Berlin. He's, he will start from Berlin, he says. Al-Kain, that's why we've suffered all, the, all these terrible things, he says, when we've lived in chutzlarts, in Spain, he says, in other countries, Tranquil, Bechavad Gadol, with great respect and great, uh, we've done well, he says, and communities that have had Jewish communities for 2,000 years since the Chorban Bayis Rishon, he says, and then were expelled, completely expelled, he says. There's a lot of debate about exactly when this community started, but certainly they've been there for centuries. 
Tzadiku Hashem, language of Tzidok Adin, we accept Hashem's judgment. Why did this all happen? Yatimi daitim legamri inyan galusa, and they have completely forgotten that they're in Galus, that they should be yearning to go back to Eretz Yisrael, and so on and so on. I've only picked this, you know, these, these two paragraphs for space constraints, but so on and so on in the same vein, in the same, the same tenor, about how terrible it is that we are not caring, we're not paying attention to Eretz Yisrael. Again, why he himself didn't make Aliyah is a good question. We'll discuss some of the reasons uh, as we go. I don't know. I didn't read the entire passage. I don't know if he ever tells us explicitly what his particular reasons were. But this is the, this is the idea, and this idea was basically picked up by many Gedolei Torah with a little bit less uh, vehemence, perhaps. But many Gedolei Israel have pointed out that it is clear, halachic sources, hashkafic sources, all kinds of sources in Jewish literature, that it should be of paramount importance to go live in Eretz Yisrael, settle in Eretz Yisrael, develop Eretz Yisrael, and the question is why we do not. So there is actually an extensive literature about a formal literature. Is it a mitzvah, say? Is it one of the Tariq mitzvahs? One of the 613 mitzvahs? Is it not? Is it Teresa? Is it Drabanan? We'll touch on that a little bit as we go. I'm not really going to focus on that question uh, front and center. Everyone agrees it is a Jewish value of the highest importance, whether it is one of the formal Tariq mitzvahs or not. So we'll see. We will touch on this question of whether it is actually one of the 613 or not. But basically, it is without question a, a paramount Jewish value, and that's one of the key issues in the Pasha. And the question is, again, why, again, why historically have Jews not made, more, not made more of an effort to go to Eretz Yisrael? Before we begin with the actual formal sources, the halachic sources, I just want to quote one more uh, introductory piece. This, uh, the following piece is from a letter a letter of approbation, Askama, written by Rabbi Yisrael Yeshua of Kutna, one of the great Lithuanian gedolim of the 19th century. The context of this letter was, it was a Haskama, it was an approbation to the classic work, Drisha Sion by Rav Tzvi Hirsch Kalisher. We've discussed this in the past, Rav Tzvi Hirsch Kalisher was essentially the founder, the intellectual, the intellectual founder of the modern, the modern religious Zionism. I don't know how much he would have necessarily have recognized of the exact form of religious Zionism as it developed later, but he was, in the early to mid-19th century, he was basically the first modern religious thinker who uh, developed an entire theology and, and actually a practical program for returning to Eretz Yisrael and settling it. He was, a, he was one of the Gedolei Torah of his time. He was a student of Rabbi Kueger and Rabbi Yaakov Loberbaum, the Nesivas, the Chavastas. And he single-handedly started a movement, tried to persuade the other Gedolei Torah of his time that we should return to Israel, we should settle the land, we should build the land, we should farm the land, and the other half of his program was we should reinstate the temple service, we should offer sacrifices. Around that latter proposal, there developed a very vigorous literature of, of Gedolei Torah who were discussing the pros and cons of that, is that practical? Is that not practical? We've discussed in the past several times a number of the issues that arose. Do we have reliable Kohanim in terms of the genealogy? Do we know where the, exactly where the Mizbeth needs to be? Do we have, uh, what about Tuma, Carbon Seber? All kinds of issues. And there was a very, again, lively and important literature that, spread, that sprang out of this. Rabbi Kveger, the Rabbi David Karliner, the Chassam Sofer, and others discussing his technical proposal about Karbanos. The other half of his proposal, though, was a social and religious program to, to, to move to Eretz Yisrael, to bring communities there, to settle Eretz Yisrael. I'm not, in, I'm not that well-versed in the history, whatever happened to his, in the short term. Obviously, in the long term, it, uh, his vision succeeded, as he pr- may never even have dreamed. But in the short term, I don't know exactly how it happened. But he wrote, his, he wrote Drisha Sion, which was his manifesto, both of the ideological, hashkafic, religious vision for 
for the Shivastion, as well as his halachic uh, portion of the work discussing his proposals for Karbanos. So one of the Haskamas was from Rabbi Yisrael Yeshua of Kutna, one of the leading Lithuanian Gedolim of the time, who, a couple of brief sentences, he did not agree with the proposal to offer Karbanos. He says, you know, with, with great respect to Rav Kalisher, he's gone a little too far here. He thinks that the technical objections are not as easily overcome as Rav Kalisher thinks. He thinks that there are insurmountable obstacles to bring Karbanos beyond the scope of our topic for today. However, for the overall program of returning to Zion, uh, of resettling Eretz Israel, he was unequivocally enthusiastic. And he writes as follows. He writes, I have seen your, uh, I have seen your, your work, your, your, your manifesto about going to Eretz Israel. I have rejoiced, he says, and when I, I rejoiced in, in seeing your, your great efforts in regarding Chevras Yishuv Eretz Yisrael, a society for the settlement of Eretz Yisrael. Hamaschel the mitzvah, Logmar, one who begins a mitzvah, we tell him that we wish him, we bless him, we wish him with success in concluding it. Asei tasem, may you do it. Gam yachal tuchal, may you be successful. And here he gives him some, uh, some. He was he was he was keen and he was a keen enough keen enough understand. He had a keen enough understanding of society and of human nature to give him the following message of support. Balipo libo, do not let your heart fall. Don't don't get discouraged. Al yerach midivri hamenagdim. Do not uh, quail in the face of, of the opposition. They're, they're not speaking intelligently. He says it's a great idea. You should do it, he says. Karbanos, he, he wasn't convinced was a great, was, was a workable idea. After all, he says, however, he returns at the end of the letter. Happy is their lot, and may, they may start out uh, modestly. They will, it will flourish and be successful, he hopes. And I wish you great success. Again, whether he actively supported it, in what way, I'm not sure. But again, he thought it was an absolutely great idea. Go to Eretz Yisrael, your kolakavot to you, and we should do it, and we hope it will work out. Again, I don't know exactly how it developed in the short term, but certainly over the next 150 years, it met with success uh, in, in a uh, magnificent way. Now, the sugi of Eretz Yisrael, getting down now to the formal sugi itself. So it, it's the great thing about, about Judaism, the way Jewish thought develops, is that some of the most lofty and you know, most abstract what we would call ideology or philosophy or theology, the way they're developed in the Talmud and in Jewish thought are from some of the most technical, mundane frameworks. The discussion of Eretz Yisrael and Chazal, the, the, the classic two-blot, two-folio of discussion of the mitzvah of living in Eretz Yisrael, appears in the end of Ksuvos. Ksuvos is the tractate that deals largely with <coughs> mutual conjugal obligations and responsibility, a man's obligation to his wife, woman's obligations to her husband, everything from allowances and food and clothing and housework and so on, and uh, divorce settlements and all kinds of stuff like that. So what is all this doing in Ksuvus? The answer is because at the end of Ksuvus, one of the last discussions of the, the laws of conjugal responsibility is what do you do if the couple cannot agree on where to live? Who decides? What are the rules for deciding if they cannot agree where they should live so what rules do we apply? So there's a mission that says, Hakol Malin Yisrael Either spouse who prefers to go to Eretz Yisrael, going to Eretz Yisrael is a is a preference that is a, that is awarded a higher priority than the one who wants to live outside Eretz Yisrael. The same thing. The mission seems to draw a pretty close parallel between Eretz Yisrael versus Chutzlarts, and Yerushalayim versus anywhere else in Eretz Yisrael, there's a lot of technical discussion in the Talmud and the Rishonim, what exactly this means, how this rule is applied, what exactly this rule says. Again, we're not going to get too deeply 
into the technicalities of how to apply this rule, halacha but the point is, the Mishnah starts us right away by telling us that, the, that in a halachic sense, in, in, in Evan Ezer, in the laws of marriage, a preference to live in Eretz Yisrael is something that is accorded high value. So the Talmud first spends a lot of time working out, as I said, the details of those laws, when that applies, what that means, what, what that means in practice, and then the Talmud goes on, on a more agadic, on a more, a more hashkafic note, developing, the, developing and emphasizing the importance of living in Eretz Yisrael. It uses some famously strong language. Anyone who lives in Eretz Yisrael, it's as though he has a god. Anyone who lives in Chutzlar, it's as though he has no god. Anyone who lives in, uh, who lives in Chutzlar, it's, it's as though he worships idols, and so on. Many statements, some remarkably outspoken, in favor of the importance of living in Eretz Yisrael, living in Yerushalayim. And some of those that were of Emden quoted in his, in his, uh, in, in his exhortations about the, all the things Chazal have said about the importance of living in Eretz Yisrael. So again, the Gemara doesn't come out explicitly and tell us it is a mitzvah, it's not a mitzvah, it's one of the Taryag, it's not one of the Taryag. It's clear from the Gemara, though, that living in Eretz Yisrael has great religious value, and, it, and that manifests, the one area of classic halacha in which that manifests itself is in the laws governing disputes over domicile between husband and wife. Tosus, the Bali Tosus, the Ashkenazim, who, who explained the Shas, were among the very first to discuss what this means for us, halacha lemaisa, how is this applied? Again, Tosus does not directly address the question of, should we make aliyah? Why don't we make aliyah? Tosus is sticking within the confines of the of the Talmudic discussion itself, which is how do we apply these rules to resolve disputes about domicile between husband and wife. Tosfus says, These Talmudic rules do not apply in contemporary times. Why? Because the journey is dangerous. That is the first statement of Tosfus. Incidentally, it's interesting, those who have studied Tosfus, 95% of Tosfus are really internal analyses of the Gemara. They involve contradictions. They involve how to reconcile conflicting passages. They involve difficulties in the Talmud itself. A relatively small percentage of Tosas are devoted to applying the Gemara to contemporary conditions in France. There are some. I think Professor Salvechik points out that in Avodah there's tons and tons of these Tosas that deal with the contemporary winemaking practice and how we apply the laws of the Gemara to contemporary, the contemporary economy in, in, in Jewish France. There are certain things which obviously Tosis was very interested in applying to contemporary times, but throughout Shas, it's really, it's to some extent, the exception rather than the rule. This is an example, Tosis, without any prodding from the text of the Gemara, he tells you that he doesn't think this applies, this does not apply in contemporary times, he says, because, very briefly, he refers to Sakhanas Drachim, the danger of the journey, we'll return to that in a moment. Then he brings from Rabbeinu Chaim, this is Rabbeinu Chaim Cohen, generally assumed to be a, a contemporary and colleague of Rabbeinu Tam, one of the early Balitoshis, Rabbeinu Chaim says, the Achshav, there is no mitzvah to live in Eretz Yisrael. Again, he says there's no mitzvah. He presumably said this in the context of the Gemara Nksuvos about the right of a spouse to compel the other spouse. Why not? He doesn't say because of the Sakhanas Drachim. He, say, he, he says a different reason. There are many mitzvahs tluyas ba'aretz. There are many laws involving produce, generally, which are, which are only applicable in Eretz Yisrael. Kama Onshin, there are many punishments for not following these laws properly. They're simply too difficult for us to follow. In our time, the obvious example is Shemitah, which has been the source of great uh, difficulty and controversy for a century. Today, uh, by and large, Israelis outside the Haredi sector relies on the Hatem 
Haredim don't like to do that. They have other kulas, and there's all kinds of uh, controversies. But in ba- back in the medieval period, too, they, they, the Rebbeinu Chaim said it was difficult to, to be properly meticulous about the laws of mitzvah Salias Baratz, and that's why there's no mitzvah to go to Eretz Yisrael. Rav Chaim's position is generally not accepted by later poskim, the Marit, Rabbi Yosef of Trani, a uh, Sephardic posik from the turn of the 17th century. In particular, he rejects this. He says, a lot of things are hard. And so we, we find ways. As Jews, you know, we study the halacha and we, we learn how to keep it and we do our best. And Kashrus is hard. Shabbos is hard. Lots of things are hard. But you know, we don't just throw up our hands and run. You know, we figure out how to do it, he says. So what kind of reason is this? Because Mrs. Lee's bards are hard. So, okay, so we'll find a way to do it, like we do today in Israel. Like the different posts can have different approaches. And Baruch Hashem, we live in Eretz Israel, and we, uh, we, keep, we try to keep the mitzvahs. So what kind of reason is this to abandon such a paramount Jewish value because it's hard to fulfill the mitzvahs Louis Baritz? And in general, Marit says so explicitly, but in general, I think it's fair to say that the consensus does not really accept Rabbi Chaim's approach. So in general, in terms of the Rishonim, we are left with Tosus. Tosus is, as brief as it is, is probably the main statement in the Rishonim for why the why going to Israel is not uh, followed as assiduously as it might be, Tosis refers to Sakhanas Drachel. Now, we hear the word danger today in Israel. We think about terrorists blowing up buses, maybe, or Iran, or you know, missiles, and so on. That wasn't what the Rishonim were concerned. Te- technology hadn't uh, progressed to this uh, great level of advancement yet. And they weren't even concerned, even, even though there were certainly plenty of anti-Semites with knives around then, but that wasn't really what they were concerned about primarily. They weren't concerned about conditions in Eretz Yisrael. As, as Tosa says, the main thing they were concerned about actually was Sakonas Drachem, was actually the, the journey itself was perilous. We find, uh, several hundred years later, we find Chuvas of the Rashbash, Rabbi Shlomo ben Shimon Duran, the son of the Tashbats, writing in the late 14th or 15th century already, writing about, uh, he was writing in North African, Sephardic North Africa. He was talking about, again, he was discussing the spousal questions about spouses who wanted to make Aliyah and couldn't agree on it. And he invokes the Tosfos and says that the concern is for Sakhanas Drachem. The primary reason not to apply the Gemara as written would be Sakhanas Drachem. He actually discusses in detail in some of his chuvas what the Sakhana is, and he actually tells you that, uh, he explains that, that if, you're, if you're making a sea voyage across the Mediterranean, you have to worry about piracy and shipwreck, and if you're making a land voyage, you have to worry about highwaymen and other types of cutthroats along the route. So basically, he says, when it comes to sea voyages, it depends on the time of the year, that in the, that, well, pirates, I guess, can be year-round, but the, the shipwrecks were typically more common in the windy season, in the winter, the rainy and windy season, summer was easier, cutthroats is all year-round, he discusses which ports, you know, closer to Israel, which ports were more dangerous, less dangerous, and this was basically the, the approach taken for centuries, that, that especially among the Sephardim, that, that we have to just simply evaluate whether the, there's always going to be some danger. No, no voyages, with that, even today, airplanes have some danger that's relatively low. It's, you know, it's famously less per mile than automobile uh, driving, but it's, you know, it's not zero. But, so, but Post can have said that there's some kind of threshold. And again, as we know, Chazal don't usually quantify risk using exact measures. But the general attitude has been that if the risk rises above some basic threshold, like Tozo said, we don't apply the Gemara. If the risk is uh, if the risk is relatively insignificant, then we apply the Gemara. Thank you. If the obligation is on everybody, then you think everybody would get together and go together and minimize the risk. Safety in numbers, yes. If you have a caravan with four hundred people, then it's going to be a lot safer than three people traveling on camels. This is true, and right insofar. So partly the post being realistic. Well, whatever they should be doing, the fact was there weren't uh, mass mass. Uh, 
mass groups of thousands, but you're right, I guess, if, if this would really be totally incumbent and the post would have enough influence and everyone would do it, then presumably it could be done in a way that would minimize the risk. It's a good point. I didn't, I didn't see anyone discuss that, but it's definitely an interesting point. Yes? And, and wouldn't the baseline be the risk at the time of the Gemara being written? Because the Gemara says do this. Yes, yes, absolutely. Right. So, so is there any reason to think that there was lower risk then than there was so a few things. So the, the Talmudic times were largely discussing, they were generally discussing the land routes, not the sea routes, because they were, they were, they were coming from Iraq or someplace which was probably largely land. The question, I guess, right, is the trade routes and how badly infested were they with bandits the, as opposed to the, opposed to, to, a, to a thousand years later. Right, is there any reason to believe that the risk had gone up significantly? It's a good question, right? I, I don't know how we can get any kind of, I guess this is the, this is the kind of thing where academic methods might help. If someone has to write a paper on the, the level of highwaymen infestation, high incidents per year, the criminology statistics of, uh, of attacks on... I do know that, that if you read the... When I was studying Chosh Mishpat, so the, the Ashkenazi tshuvas are commonly about you know, wagon drivers and factory owners, and later the Svardik tshuvas are typically about Mediterranean trade, so the Svardik tshuvas are <coughs> incredibly swashbuckling. They're full of... Uh, and then the ship was attacked by pirates, and they threw him into the water, and his hands were bound, but then he fell and he found, he found some flotsam in the river, and... They're all about uh, mutinies. Uh, you know, there are chuvas about whether insurance policies that, go, that cover piracy include mutiny, with, and so on. So the, the, the Svartic chuvas were full of kind of the, the colorful, uh, the, colorful you know, the, the, the stuff that makes reading uh, seafaring novels interesting when you're reading it from the comfort of your home. They were, they were full of that stuff. How that compares to Talmudic times, again, I'm, I'm not, I, right, it's obviously a valid point, but I'm not in a position to really offer an opinion. Yes. Right. Right, and that I guess is, is kind of Steve's point that, and that was probably similar to the situation dis- discussed by Chazal, and still Chazal felt that these laws applied. So Chazal must have felt that that level of danger, assuming again, assuming it was similar in Talmudic times to Bayechani, they must have been assuming that that was still tolerable risk. So yeah, these, these are good points. Yes, I, I, I don't have a real, real, real answer to this. Similarly, especially in post-post day, it wasn't so safe to stay in Europe. Right. This is true. So that's another aspect of relative risk. You have to look at uh, you have to look at the delta in risk, not not the not the absolute risk. Yes. So that another good point. Uh, your daily life was precarious to begin with. You'd have to look at how much more risk you had. By you know, all good points. So the so the Rashbash himself, as I mentioned, the Rashbash has several chuvos discussing. Again, he's not discussing fundamentally whether whether is or is not a mitzvah to go to Eretz Israel. He's discussing how we apply these halachas between men and women. So he says, in one of his chuvas, he focuses on Sakana, and he says that the Sakana in, in much of North Africa, he felt, was above the threshold for applying these, these laws as written. He actually discusses whether Yishevar Yisrael is a mitzvah or not. He does engage in that discussion, too. He says, that there's no doubt, he says, Ain Suffolk, that it is a mitzvah gedola. Always, even after the Chorban, it doesn't matter, he says, it's still a mitzvah to go to Eretz Yisrael. He quotes, uh, the Ramban counts it as one of the 613, he says, and that's the opinion of his father, the the, the Rashbash was Rabbi Shlomo ben Shimon. His father was Rabbi Shimon ben Temach, the, the author of the Tashbats. And he wrote the Zohar Harakia, which was a classic work on the Tariq Mitzvahs, and he did count it also as one of the Tariag, even according to the Rambam. The Rambam is the famous one who does not count it. The Rambam does not count uh, Yishevet Yisrael as one of the Tariq Mitzvahs. It's definitely Mitzvah Drabanan, he says, and definitely great Jewish value also, we can add. However, besides the question of Sakana, he is the first one, really, to introduce a second concern, which was never really paid that much attention to until the 20th century again. 
he introduces the famous idea, what has now become famous, in, of the Shalashvuos, the three oaths. The three oaths is a reference to the same Gemara and Ksuvis we mentioned earlier. At the end of that Gemara and Ksuvis, the Gemara says, Again, this is, this, is, this is drush, this is certainly not, I would say this is not Pshut HaShel Mikra, but the, regardless, the Talmud says if there were three oaths that God made the Jewish people swear, Gimel Shavuos Lama, one of them is Shlo Yalu Yisrael Bechoma, that the Jews should not make Aliyah, send to Yisrael Bechoma. Choma is a difficult word to translate. Choma means literally a wall. It carries some connotation, like a wall of people, or some connotation of by force or en masse or in a, uh, in a mass movement, that the Jews shouldn't return to Yisrael on their own without divine authorization, Bahoma. One of them is Yimr Dubuumos, the Jews should not rebel against the sovereignty of the nations of the world. And the third one, according to this version of the Gemara, is uh, a corresponding Shvua, two were on the Jews, the third one was on the non-Jews, they shouldn't oppress the Jews, Yoser Midai. Some oppression apparently is acceptable, but they should, not, they should not enslave them, they should not oppress them too much. So we have two Shvuas that we should not make mass unilateral aliyah to Israel, and they should behave themselves with respect to imposing their will on us. So this is, again, this is an Agatha to Gemara, and of course it's always difficult to know what is the normative force of a Gemara like this, but the Rashbash, to the best of my knowledge, is one of the first to apply this in a, in a real-world way, and the Rashbash said that the Jewish people as a whole is barred, this, this speaks to what Hadass was saying about if, we, if, if everyone would get together and, uh, and go, we could eliminate some of the Sakana problems. On the other hand, the Rashbash says there cannot be a mitzvah to go to Israel and mass Bizman He says it's one of the shvuas that God says, further in the Gemara, says we shouldn't try to accelerate the, the end times on our own. We shouldn't try, we shouldn't be Yalu Bechoma. And so on, he says, there is a mitzvah al kal yachid. It's uh, individuals have a mitzvah. You know, we, 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 as we've discussed in the past, you get into a kind of, uh, kind of omega and consistency about this. Every individual has a mitzvah, but there can't be a mitzvah for everyone to go. So as long as you can remain a yachid, you can have a mitzvah to go. But the nation as a whole can't go. So, but individuals can go, and so on. Now, that's the position of the Rashbash, and that is his, that, that's his position. So the, the Shalosh Vuos, again, were never really, never really discussed that seriously, except by this Rashbash. They began to be discussed again in the, in the 20th century. The, the Rebbe of Satmer, of Yoel Teitelbaum, wrote an entire work, by Yoel Moshe, which was largely, the, which was largely exploring the Gimel Shvuos and, and the, the Satmer position, the Satmer extremist, anti, anti-political Zionist view, is largely based intellectually on, on, his, you know, on, on his particular understanding of the Gimel Shvuos, that one of the things that prevents us from going to Eretz Yisrael is that uh, making Aliyah is problematic insofar as we promised God we would not do so without his authorization. Now, before the Satmar Rebbe, there were other Gedol Yisrael earlier who, besides, again, after the Rashbash, before the, before the Rebbe of Satmar, who had actually discussed the Shalosh Vuos and who felt it did not apply. So, Remer Simcha of Dvinsk, the Arsameach, the Meshachachma. So, Remer Simcha of Dvinsk was, was very difficult to, uh, to, to get exactly right what his position was on modern political Zionism. On the one hand, he was very much not a... Uh, a fellow traveler of the Mizrahi, he, he sided more, my understanding is he sided more with the, the more Haredi, more reactionary rabbinate of his time. On the other hand, he did have a tremendous yearning for and a tremendous appreciation for, in principle, stripped of all its political and 
and uh, actual overtones in the real world, uh, he did have a, a very passionate appreciation, like Rav Kalisher, for the possibility of going to Eretz Yisrael. And there is a letter of his, published, I think, by the Mizrahi in one of their journals, there is a letter of his where he explicitly addresses the question of the Gimel Shvuos and says it is a non-issue. Post-Balfour Declaration, what he calls San Remo, he says, he refers to Basifas Hamam Lachot Hanarot, in the gathering of the enlightened nations, whatever it was at the time, the, the League of Nations, or however they were meeting back then, in San Remo, in Tafresh in Zion, that would be 17, 1917. He says, Nitin Tzav, they issued a, a ruling, an edict, that Eretz Yisrael shall be for the nation of Israel, Vesar Pachana Shvuz, no more Shvuz. The theory is pretty straightforward, the, that we're not allowed to rebel against the nations, we're not allowed to be Ola Bechoma, Bechoma means unilaterally, means disrespecting the sovereignty that God has granted the nations of the world over Eretz Yisrael and the Golos. That we're not allowed to do. But if they themselves, he said, with the permission of kings, of leaders, of potentates, whoever was in charge of the various nations of the world at that time, then they have accepted that Jews can go back, so we have their authorization. The mitzvah of Yishev Eretz Yisrael returns, and the issue of the Shavuos falls away, he says. Mitzvah kalish, every man, every Jewish man has a mitzvah, to to help, to cooperate, to participate with all, with all his ability, he says, to fulfill the mitzvah. He says, yes, he says, and then he, then he says a very, a very powerful, very, uh, very interesting point. He says, he says the, perhaps he says, the horbun of the first temple, the destruction of the first temple came about, it was predicted by Nevi'im, Yeshaya, Yermia, full of prophecies about the destruction of Eretz Yisrael and the temple, the return to Zion was also predicted by them, and it was accompanied by Nevi'im, Chagah Zechariah Malachi, he says. However, he says, but just like the, the Chorban of the Second Temple, the Chorban of, of, of Rome, the destruction of the Second Temple by the Romans, was, was not accompanied by direct prophecy. We can interpret some of the prophecies in Nevi'im Rishonim as referring to the Chorban, but not, you know, there were no actual Nevi'im of the time who were prophesying, he says. So too, he says, perhaps, the Anachas Evanapina, the laying of the cornerstone in the return to Zion, We'll also maybe not be Alpine to VM. This, this was basically Rav Kalisher's thesis too. Rav Kalisher's essential theological innovation was that we don't have to necessarily assume, that, which was traditionally assumed, that God would bring the temple down with a fire and send Mashiach and everything, and he would do everything, and we would just be swept along. Rav Kalisher argued, and Rameir Simcha is echoing the same idea, that there may be more of a this-worldly, more of a terrestrial return to Zion. It may not be accompanied by... It may not be preceded by open Nisim and Nevi'im. It may simply be something that we Jews do on our own, which obviously is, to some extent, the cornerstone of modern religious Zionism, the idea that we don't have to wait for actual Nevi'im to, to prophesy what's going to happen. It, it's enough that we can view the events as God's hand, even if the, it isn't preceded, it isn't, they aren't preceded and accompanied by open miracles. But again, so the Rashbash did seem to fail that the Gimel Shvuos were enforced, at least pre, pre-Balfour Declaration. There was some, there was some great Gedolei Torah, like the Rameir Simcha, Avnezer also. The Avnezer, the Sochachover, a Hasidic uh, thinker also. Again, largely known as a halachist, but he has some, some very interesting stuff on modern religious Zionism. And he also says that, he, on the one hand, we have the, the Shvuah, that we're not allowed to ascend by force to Israel. On the other hand, he says, Kolzeh, we don't have permission from the Memshalah, from the government, he says. If, however, we would obtain permission from the relevant authorities to go to Eretz Yisrael, then Mechoyev, he says, 
then, uh, then we'd have to. And he doesn't discuss specifically whether we do or don't have permission in his day, but he says that, yeah, in theory, if we got permission from the nations of the world, that would be fine. Okay, so just to spend a, a few minutes more discussing uh, overall some of the reasons p- that Gedolei Torah have given over the centuries for why more Jews have not made Aliyah. So the first reason has been the school of thought based on Tosis. They thought it was too dangerous in their time. Rav Shlomo Kluger, writing in the 19th century in Russia, he also acknowledges that Jews historically have not made Aliyah to the extent that they could have. He says, he says it must be that we paskin that there's no mitzvah. And then the proof is, either because of Sakano or for other reasons, but it must be, he says, that, we, that, we, that, that, that the general halacha follows the view there's no mitzvah because we know that Jews historically haven't gone, even when they could have. He says many people had no choice. And certainly many people didn't have the means, the opportunity, he says, to go. However, he says, there were those who did. There were those who did, he says. Rabbanim Chasidim. There were Hasidic rabbis who could have. They had the power. They had the following who could have helped them do it. Again, back to Hadassah's point about they could have, it wouldn't have been one-man endeavors. They could, have, they, could have, they could have led large communities. He said, particularly, he names names, particularly he said the Rebbe of Rujin, Rabbi Yisrael of Rujin, he was famous for being wealthy, I think, and powerful, and he was, a, uh, he was a force to be reckoned with. If he wanted to, he had the means to do it, he says. So certainly the halacha follows the view that there is no mitzvah. So this really goes back to the time of the Maram of Rattenberg, one of the greatest of the, of the German medieval scholars, the end of the period of the Balitosis, he writes, they asked him point blank, why didn't the Maram themselves go to Eretz Yisrael? So he says, it was too difficult, he says. Why? Because they, they would have been unable to study Torah properly. They would have been too busy scrabbling uh, together a living, and they wouldn't have been able to learn Torah properly, he says. And the rule is that one of the few things in the Torah that overrides the, that overrides the mitzvah of Yishev Eretz Yisrael is the mitzvah to study Torah properly. And this is a second concern that many posts can bring, that someone who would have to sacrifice the study of Torah, the proper study of Torah, that is something that one is not required to, to go to Eretz Yisrael for. So again, Steve was pointing out that Chazal, despite the, despite the danger that was present in their time, still said these mitzvahs applied. The Maram of Rattenberg says that even in Talmudic times, the reason many rabbis stayed in Bavel is because, again, it's kind of a chicken and egg thing, that the reason that there was less Torah in Eretz Yisrael would have been because there were fewer Chachamim there, and if the more who would have went, the more who would have gone, the more likely they could have been, they would have developed Torah, but again, it's a, it, it's a problem, it's a bootstrapping problem, you have to you have to get it off the ground somehow when any individual rabbi in, in the time of the Talmud who was considering going was stymied by the fact that there was insufficient infrastructure to study Torah properly in Eretz Yisrael. And this is, again, what Postman have said, that certainly for individual rabbis, they may have felt that their communities needed them to teach Torah or they themselves couldn't study Torah properly. And this is something that, uh, that again, many posts can bring up. It's an interesting point uh, because Talmud Torah has a very interesting place in the hierarchy of values in, in Judaism. On the one hand, we say Talmud Torah connected Kulam. Talmud Torah is considered of paramount importance. On the other hand, Talmud Torah is set aside in favor of other mitzvahs. A person can't say, I'm not going to hear shofar today. I'm not going to take lulav today. I'm busy learning Torah. The Yushalmi mentions that and ridicules that as that's learning Shalom and Aslasos. That's preposterous. The general rule is for any mitzvah that's overus, for any mitzvah that You'll miss your opportunity if you keep learning, and it cannot be done by somebody else. If it can be done by somebody else, someone else can take care of the mitzvah. Someone has to bury, bury the dead. There is a Hebra Kaddish who can do it, so you can learn, and someone else will bury it. But if there's no one to do it, you have to close your Gemara, close your Chumash, and go out and do the mitzvah. So generally we say Talmud Torah is set aside for any other mitzvah. On the other hand, Talmud Torah Kineget Kulam says that Talmud Torah does override other mitzvahs. Eretz Yisrael itself, again, we've seen as a mitzvah which is not 
not absolutely clear that it's as mandatory and as binding as putting on tefillin. So the Marama Rattenberg and other, other posts have said that the need to learn Torah properly is something else that can, is something else that can override the, that can override the, the mitzvah to go to Eretz Yisrael. The Parnassah was a big thing. Parnassah, and this is something that still applies today. Today, Sakhanas Drachim is certainly less than it was for much of history. Even the terrorist threat is objectively, in overall numbers, is relatively low. Existential threats like Iran are hard, hard to measure in any meaningful way, but Sakhanas is less of a factor. Parnassah is the one thing which Postkim have always mentioned from the, from the Rishonim down to the present day. Rabbi Emden, despite all his exhortations, he repeatedly says that it's only expected, it's only feasible to go to Israel if you have some means of making a living, whether through business, through trade, or through a profession, he says. There is a classic tshuva of Rabbi Yonah for the Miltzedaka, writing in the 17th or 18th century. He was asked about a group of idealistic Jews who wanted to make Aliyah from somewhere in Europe, and they, they were all on board. Husbands, wives, they were all on the same page. There were several families who wanted to make Aliyah together. The local Basin had stepped in to interdict them on the grounds that they were endangering the welfare of minors, their children. They were taking children along, and they felt that they had no right. They, they, they want to do this idealistic thing and put themselves at risk. That's fine. They can't risk their children's lives. So Rav Lansofer, in his Mil Tzedakah, rejects this argument. He overturns the decision of the local Basin and says... He essentially says, topic for another day, but he essentially says the risk to children is no greater than the risk to adults. He says, what are you worried about? Pirates sacking the ship, shipwreck, everyone's dead. You are adults and children. You worried about the, the rigors of the voyage? Children are more resilient. They're bouncing off the walls all day, he says. If they, 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 can, they can more easily tolerate a rigorous voyage than adults. He says, people who live in seafaring areas, they travel with children all the time. It's not so dangerous. So he actually shoots down the question of danger. It's, 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 the danger is not so significant, not for the adults, not for the kids. And the, the reason given by the local Basin, he actually dismisses and says, not a reason, that the, the danger is manageable, it's acceptable, acceptable risk, and good for them, they want to go to Israel. The one thing he cautions, the one concern he has, is Parnassah. He says, Parnassah is a big deal. We know that the economy was terrible in Israel, the chance to make a living, an honorable living. You know, to, to live off something other than handouts was very difficult back then, he says. And here he distinguishes between children and adults. He says that the adults, the adults are risking their, the adults are willing idealistically to make the decision as adults, fine, so that's their decision. They're, they're, they're uh, noble enough to do it, good for them. The kids, the kids are not really making that decision of their own will, they don't understand, they're not really being asked, he says. So to put a kid through this, to have him suffer without being able to make a living, he says, that can have adverse consequences on the kid's personal religious development, he says, and therefore you should be very careful before doing this, make sure that you really have a, a meaningful plan for how to make ends meet once you make it to Eretz Yisrael. Why did he feel that was different than being attacked by pirates and being killed? The pirates, I think he felt it was simply very low. He felt, I think he felt the risk was low, and the, you're right, if the risk would be high, I think he probably would have objected, but he, he does articulate a general principle that a level of risk which a person a person's not allowed to submit himself to unacceptably high risk either. But, but he establishes essentially a rule, which I always thought was a very powerful and important rule for, for, you know, for a welfare of a child considerations. That any, any danger that a person could reasonably subject himself, he has the right to subject his family to too, including minor children. But right, when it comes to the danger of poverty, he feels that since you're making the decision, You'll be able, if you think you can live and struggle and, and, and scrimp together, you can do that, but he fails that for kids. 
that uh, it'll be harder for them, and I guess it's an ongoing thing. Yeah, it's, it's a good point uh, that, that for physical danger, he's more willing to say, whatever you do for yourself, we can do for him, and, and for poverty, less willing, but just close with one, uh, one story that this, this you know, doesn't have any, uh, doesn't have any uh, dispositive value, but just I keep thinking back to this when I think of this tshuva. I was once, I had once been in Hebron for Shabbos Chayisara, where they all get together, and, and I was, uh, at, 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 over the weekend I had come back, and I was, uh, I was um, expressing admiration for the, for the Mesiris Nefesh of people who go out there and live like that and, uh, in danger because of, because of beliefs, because of a value, a value system, you know, whether, I, whether I would share exactly all the same thing as them, I don't know, but that, uh, I, it was something that I thought was impressive. So my interlocutor was a Haredi who did not approve of this, and he started grumbling. He said, it's no way, it's no way to raise kids and on hilltops, being shot at, and so on. I said, okay, I said, but some people would feel that raising children in poverty is also not a, not a good way to raise kids. It's unhealthy for them to grow up being deprived and being uh, you know, cut off from the pursuits of the world. He said, no, but the kids are taught, and the chinuch is that it's for Hashem, and it's for you know, service of God. I said, okay, and they teach their kids that what they're doing is for the service of God. So I, I, don't know, I don't know exactly where I would come down on either of these things, but the point is, this concern about poverty was actually, this is exactly the concern of the Miltadaka. He says that even if you as an adult are, are religiously lofty enough and, uh, and have made the decision, be careful. Again, he wasn't talking about living there locally, he was talking about making Aliyah, but he actually raises this concern that despite all the great value of living in Eretz Yisrael, one of the, one of the, one of the themes echoed by all the people who discuss this, not all, but many of the people who discuss this throughout the generations is, Poverty is a, is a real problem, and that a person should be careful before moving if he has no uh, visible means of support, and if he's going to, to struggle, that could be a real issue. So besides, of course, physical sarkana, which, which Tosis already discussed, is this concern also with not being able to make a proper living is also something that was acknowledged as a serious reservation by those who discussed this topic.